Welcome to the Park Road Podcast for December 29th, 2019. Today's podcast is a sermon given by Russ Dean, co-pastor with Amy Jackstein at Park Road Baptist Church. His sermon today is entitled, The Gift of Worship. I'm so glad Amy began by calling your attention to that um, meditation printed in your bulletin because that's where the sermon begins and ends. That phrase from the celebrated writer John Updike pretty much sums it up for me. Faith is a vague yin towards something larger. That's what I believe. And that's why my belief continues to include worship, formal, structure, structured, regular worship. It's not the paycheck. It's a a yen towards something larger. Updike's take on faith reminds me of the old song from the North Carolina singer-songwriter David Wilcox, who says of his faith, you ask me if I'm faithful. You ask me if I'm true. I answer with a question. It's all that I can do. Do I dare believe and let love lead my life? Could I not believe and leave this love behind? I don't have all the answers. I can't explain it all. I don't know. I'm not sure where I'm going, but I think I hear a call. Do I dare believe? That vague yen towards something larger, the call that I think I hear too. It's why I'm here today. It's what today's final pastoral gift is all about, worship. Now, I realize that my affirmation of some vague yin will not be enough for some folks. Some will demand more certainty of faith. Some will claim more clarity. Some will proclaim more dogma than a vague yin towards something larger allows In his best-selling book, Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster quotes William Temple in saying, to worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, to devote the will to the purpose of God. Now, I could spend some time this morning illuminating each of those phrases, supporting each from my own understanding, because there's actually a a lot of truth there. But my guess is that even as I was reading those phrases, to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, you were already yawning, some of you. For a growing number of people, even church people, such proclamations ring hollow and feel like a little too much piety for use in everyday life. Maybe that's just another sign of the times. But if you have ever doubted that a changing culture is chipping away at the church and our theology with it, don't. Don't doubt. The data are clear. Fewer people are attending. More people are walking away. Most are not returning. As we have discussed in other times, the author Diana Butler Bass identifies 10 events 
in the first decade of the 21st century that all damaged the reputation and standing of the church in society. From the 9-11 attacks carried out by Muslim extremists, extremists, which she says by association led to skepticism of all religion, to the Roman Catholic sexual abuse scandal, which by association led to a lack of respect and trust for all religious authorities. These 10 events that she identifies led Butler Bass to call the years 2000 to 2010 the horrible decade for the church. I dare say little has been done to improve the situation since 2010 So Amy and I have been your pastors for what might arguably be the 20 worst years in the history of American religion. But don't feel sorry for us. We love our job, despite the challenge. I mean that. And it's not as if these challenging times have not impacted teaching and finance, law and technology, construction and counseling, most of your jobs, as well as our jobs. The whole culture is changing. I'm not asking for your sympathy, but I do want you to understand the impact that this wave of change has had, maybe particularly on my preaching. Amy can speak for herself, but what I know is that I engage much of this aspect of my work in a slightly defensive, slightly confrontational manner almost all the time. Maybe that competitive spirit that I knew when I was a middle school quarterback, when I was a high school tennis player, maybe I've just transferred that competitive spirit to the pulpit for constructing and delivering sermons. Almost every time I step onto this holy ground, I feel like I'm doing a little bit of battle. I feel as if I need to be defending the faith against an onslaught of challengers. I feel called to offer a kind of Christian apologetics against both secular critics and voices within the church itself. Within the larger church, given the particularities of this pulpit, I often feel as if I'm walking a narrow gauntlet of criticisms, navigating landmines between the fundamentalisms of the left and the right, and now by a poison politic. Liberals who don't want to talk about the divinity of Jesus or the miracles, but whose theology is not marked by social and political progressivism, and conservatives, not necessarily conservatives in this congregation, but conservatives who still want to try to pretend they can take the Bible literally, defending everything from creationism to homophobia. That's the tightrope I feel I walk every Sunday, trying to defend Christian faith from this pulpit. It may not be the healthiest environment for preaching. It's certainly not an easy atmosphere for sharing good news. It is certainly not the environment in which my father spent most of his 50-plus years in a Baptist pulpit. I've tried to tell you all of this before, but maybe hearing it again today will help you understand the tone, if not all the nuance that comes from my sermons. During this Advent and Christmas season, we've tried to offer gifts, sincere pastoral desires for this community of faith based on our experience with you, 20 years together. In each one of these gifts we have offered, I could feel the quiet wind of conflict, cultural challenge. Persistent hope 
is a countercultural movement in a nation divided by deeply conflicting visions and commitments. An other perspective is needed because none of the conventional wisdoms of religion or national or political conviction will bring true biblical justice. Joy in faith challenges the fear of hell on the one hand and the irrational escapist hope of heaven that characterizes most street-level religion. Beloved community offers a local church family a chance to cement its relationships with a global vision of equality, a true desire for peace and justice for all people. And sacred wonder dares to suggest that those moments of awe and wonder hint to us that there really is something mysterious and mystical going on in this world. In each of these last five sermons, I have felt that challenge some from within, some from without, trying to walk a gauntlet and offer you a gift of faith, a pastoral gift that we can still be Christian in this world. Not so long ago, the basic conviction of each of those pastoral desires, those gifts I've just enumerated, were mostly accepted across the culture. Even among non-churchgoers, there was some general affirmation of the existence of God the value of religious institutions and religious life, a conviction to defend a reverence for things that might be called holy. At risk of overstating the issue, I would suggest, however, that in the 20 years we have been your pastors, those convictions have mostly changed and are largely gone from our culture at large. The culture is not just increasingly secular, but increasingly hostile to religion and religious views. And in response, the loudest voices of religion are rising up with a fundamentalistic vengeance that is not only counter to the faith of Jesus, but counterproductive to a healthy society. You see, I'm trying to walk between the two extremes. So I offer all of that as a long introduction to a not very long sermon. In a culture that has a diminishing tolerance for religion, a culture that increasingly distrusts clergy voices, that uh, that reserves less and less room for anything so-called holy, making an argument that 21st century folks ought to devote time in their busy weekly lives to worship God. Well, that's an increasingly difficult argument to make. You understand? Some years ago, I read an interview with Microsoft founder Bill Gates, who opined that he did not have much use for organized religion because spending an hour each week in worship was not an efficient use of his time, quote, unquote. Let me wholeheartedly agree. This gathering is not an efficient use of your time. You could be making money somewhere else. But inefficient time spent in a routine of gathered corporate communal worship is a waste of time that might save the soul of this nation and yours and mine along with it. My conviction is quite simple. Worship 
begins with a fundamental recognition of humility. Worship begins in humility. This is the core conviction at the heart of the genius of Alcoholics Anonymous and the many 12-step methods that have derived from it. Recognition of a higher power is the beginning of healing, maybe all healing. Acknowledgement of the great otherness of God, bowing, bending, submitting, deferring, praising, whatever adjectives you want to use, is inseparable from our wholeness. Worship, a fundamental call to humility, is a reminder of our essential nature. To be human is to be rooted in the humus, that is, in the earth. From dust you have come, and to dust you shall return. We are earthy creatures. To be human is to acknowledge our fundamental humility in the face of the grand mystery that I choose to call God. Now, you don't need to believe that God is some great cartoon in the sky, some cosmic man upstairs commanding and controlling You don't need to believe, as apparently one coach does, that God granted favor to the Clemson Tigers last night so they could win a football game. You don't need to have some tribal notion of the divine that your God is jealous and selfish, demanding and angry, capricious and manipulating. You don't need to believe that worship means groveling before such a God, that singing hymns means falling praise to appease divine wrath, You don't need to believe that sitting in a moment of personal honesty and the clarity of confession means paying obeisance to curry divine favor. You don't need to believe all that. Your ideas about God can be as big as they need to be for you, as broad as any horizon you can envision, and worship still makes sense. Because the act of worship is a simple fundamental acknowledgement of humility. And if we don't start in humility, we will never get an honest start at all. Now, let me add a big parenthesis here to say that we could spend a lot of time talking about how we ought and ought not to worship, about what language is appropriate and inappropriate for God and for our relationships, for one another. We could spend a lot of time discussing the proper way to sing a proper theology. We could and should take issue with some of the language we routinely use in hymns and scripture and liturgy. We could spend a lot of time trying to figure out worship. And the truth is, we do. We spend a lot of time with that. Your ministers fret a lot over which hymns to sing and how to reword some of our choral anthems and what scriptures to read and which ones to avoid and how to construct a proper, healthy, helpful service of worship. But to be sure, all of that is just form. And what ultimately matters is not the form, whether we use an organ or an electric guitar a printed bulletin or a PowerPoint and screens, whether we sing hymns or choruses, we ought to fret over how to worship. But what matters is the function, not the form. What matters, 
because it has always had the power to shape and transform individual persons and nations of people is the act of worship. Gathering regularly, corporately, pausing to acknowledge our basic finitude, our smallness in the face of the bigness that I name God by whatever name you want to call the great mystery. That act, worship, calls us to frame our living in a humility that is actually grace. To be humble does not mean to wallow in the mire of self-loathing and insecurity. It's just a simple recognition of our place in the grand scheme. It's just recognizing that it's not all about me, that I can't do it myself, that sometimes I need help, that sometimes I need to call on you. You need to call on me. That in its most fundamental form, you and I need God. We need worship. This nation needs worship because worship grounds us, quite literally calling us to recognize our humble beginnings, our human humility. And when you start with humility, gratitude comes natural. And grateful people live beyond themselves. They look forward and they give back. They see themselves not as meaningless automatons, accidents in some purposeless universe, but neither do they see themselves as the center of their little world and all that matters. But humility in the face of grace and goodness calls simple human beings to find their place, our place, in the big picture of a truly grand creation and to learn to live for one another. So people with other more efficient things to do get up on a Sunday morning, put on good clothes, and assemble out of nothing but faith, some vague yen towards something larger. Simply as a human gathering, I find it moving, reassuring, even inspiring. And so we worship. May it always be so. Amen. We invite you to learn more about Park Road at parkroadbaptist.org. Park Road is a progressive faith community located in Charlotte, North Carolina, encouraging independent thought, community service, social justice, and interfaith understanding. Today's podcast was produced with production help from Hugh Ashcraft, Brian Smith, Bruce White, and Rich Dower. Our theme music was composed by Brandon Michael Williams. Thanks for listening today. Grace and peace to you.